the truth about the tithe. I cannot remember when last and if I have ever preached on this topic, on this subject. But the uh, church leadership has asked me to do a lesson on it. And so that's what I'll be doing this morning. Some of you I met in the week and you said to me uh, when we spoke about this, uh, goodness, uh, that must be so hard. That's going to be so uncomfortable to talk about. I mean, sure, I feel so, you know, sad for you that you've got to deal with this. I am not at all, at all, because I'm not a prosperity preacher. Those of you who know what that is about, you have some churches who have preachers, and they are enriching themselves. They are in ministry, and they um, teach things from the pulpit, like saying, God will bless you when you give money to the church, when in reality, money is being uh, poured into the pockets of that guy. Because the sign of being blessed by God is having lots of money. And so if you have a, you want a preacher that's blessed by God, right? So you want him to be wealthy, right? And so people pour money into this guy. And I, I'm confident this morning to say I'm not that. And I'm also confident this morning to say that this church is not a business church. Many churches are business churches. The only thing that they worry about is bums and bucks. How many people are there and how much money is being given? And I can confidently say that's not what we are. And so when a topic like this comes to the table, and I'm asked to talk about it, the only reason why I agreed to talk about it is because the Bible talks about it. And if anything is in the Word of God, it's worthy to be spoken of. Um, and so that's why I'm very confident this morning, and I'm scared to talk about this, because it's an integral part in participating in the kingdom of God. Let me um, say this. True disciples of Jesus want to know how they can use their time, treasure, and talent for the glory of God. Usually I put those three together. Time, treasure, and talent. And I've, I personally have spoken a lot about time and using your talents to make disciples. Taking your time and your talents to bring glory to the kingdom of God. And treasure is just one of those things that we can also add um, in order to contribute to what the kingdom of God is busy doing it. And, and those of you who feel like this, this will be a great lesson for you. And let me just premise what I'm going to say this morning. And I, let me just be honest. Some, some of you are going to hear some things maybe this morning you've never heard before. And you're going to think differently about this subject. Uh, even, I'll be honest with you, I had a conversation with Doug, I think it was two weeks ago, about this topic. And I said, to him, you know, I'm pretty confident that this is the situation. I went to go study it this week and came to totally different conclusions. And so it should be exciting. I'm very excited about this. Here's what I want us to, to, to remember. And this sort of summarizes what I'm going to say this morning. Giving money towards God's things is not an obligation, but an opportunity to invest in things that really matter. And I want you to keep that in your mind. So I'll be answering maybe a few questions as we go through this. What is tithing and should we tithe? Maybe you've um, you've heard that word and you think you know what it means. Maybe you don't know what it means. Uh, I'll be honest with you, my whole life I've never used that word. The word tithe I've never really used. In the churches where I serve, that word never came up. Let's talk about that. What should money be used for in God's kingdom? Because I think there's great confusion about that in the world, in, in other uh, Christian circles. Thirdly, do I give to God or do I give to the church? And how do I make sense of that? And fourthly, can the kingdom of God continue without money? Does the kingdom of God really need money? 
And maybe hopefully I'll touch on that. Maybe I'm, I won't be able to answer it satisfactorily. But this at least gives us some direction. So tithing, the word tithing is actually a bad word. Who knows what tithe means? Anybody? 10% or a tenth, right? So when I say I'm tithing, what does that mean? I mean, is, is, is that really a, a, a verb? I mean, I'm 10%ing. You see, it doesn't make sense really, but we, we use that word. Now, essentially, when people or churches say, hey, let's talk about tithing or the tithe, what it really means is this, that you give 10% of what you earn to God. That's essentially what it means. And some churches love this and love teaching on this. And I've seen it in the churches of Christ. I've seen it in some churches where I've been, where people will come and they they'd pull out this text. You must know this text. If you've, you've been in churches and you've sit, sit in, sat in sermons and, and some preachers, oh, they love this text. Let's read it together. Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 to 10. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? They're asking God. This is God speaking, right? In tithes and offerings, you're robbing me. You are under a curse. You're a whole nation because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe. There we got the word. Bring the whole what? 10% into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessings that there will not be enough room to store it. This is the go-to text if you're a prosperity gospel preacher. The go-to text. Because this is essentially the message. If you want to be blessed, pay 10% to the church. And if you don't pay 10% to the church, you are under a curse. And you are robbing God. Isn't that an incredible way to make people feel really guilty and start paying. I don't want to be under a curse. I don't want to rob God. I'm going to pull out the bucks. Throw it in so I can be blessed. And the curse can be lifted off me. And on top of that. Oh, I'm so glad because God's going to open the floodgates of heaven. So I'll get more money. And so I start giving. Why? So I can get. Mm, scary situation to be in. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've heard this being taught like this and applied like it, I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know what the teaching of tithing and giving has been in this church. So I'm really coming this at a blank statement and maybe I'll be offending some people, but I hope that you will just hear what the text is saying and not, not me. I'm just going to say it as it is. This is false teaching and it's false application of the Word of God. And I'm going to show you this morning why. This is destroyed Many Christians. This has made many Christians leave the faith. And I don't want us to ever be that, uh, fall unto that, un under that, that struggle. So let's talk about it. First of all, tithing falls under the Mosaic law. It falls under the Mosaic law. And we have been set free from the law of Moses. We are not under the law of Moses. We are not Jews. Giving 10% for the Jews was not optional. It was compulsory. And here's the kicker. 
And I didn't know this, to be honest, and I feel bad. I've been studying the Word, but I, I, you know, I haven't really studied these topics that lengthy because I've never really been interested in, in, in money. So here's the kicker. When the Bible talks about a tithe, it's not just talking about one ten percent It's far worse than that. And I'll share that with you, and you can go look at these verses yourself. The, the Israelites did, weren't required to just give one tithe. There's the Levitical tithe, and that's the one that we generally talk about. You can go read about that in Numbers 18, 21, and 24. When God divided up the land of Israel, He gave each of the tribes their own piece of land, right? And that was divided among the families. And they could go and plant crops and have animals and produce an income. But the Levites didn't receive land. So they couldn't produce an income. They couldn't have cattle and wheat and provide food for themselves. Their job was to take care of the temple and its procedures. And also associated with that is, in a sense, running the government of Israel. So in a sense, this tithe wasn't just about feeding them. It was about making sure. Because the Israelites were under a theocracy, not a democracy. That's how they were fed. They were fed off this 10%. That went to them because they didn't receive land. They didn't have animals. They wouldn't eat. And so people would give animals. They would give spices. They would give wheat. Sometimes um, they would sell the animals and then give the money to the, to the, uh, to the priests. And specifically the Levites. And so this, this was a tithe for the Levites. But secondly, there was the tithe of the feasts. Deuteronomy 14 verse 22 to 27. Every year... They are to give 10% for the feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast um, of Booths, I think sometimes it's also called as well. Um, the Israelites had many feasts and those had to be funded. There were animals needed for those feasts, for those sacrifices. There, there was all kinds of things needed for those feasts. And they had to give 10% for that as well. And every three years, there was a tithe for the poor. So every three years you come, you bring 10%. Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. And then you would give to take care of the poor in Israel. This was an incredible system. Now let's add it up. Well, well there's another one. Let me not forget about this. This wasn't, sort of, this wasn't a tithe, but this was a temple tax. If you were 20 years or older, you had to pay a temple tax. That was half a shekel. And every year you had to pay that. It's all, often called an offering as well. So there's four things Israelites had to pay. Let's add it together. What's the percentage? It's about 25%. It's not 10%. There was more. It's 10% for the Levites. 10% for the feasts. 10% after three years. So every three years. So you divide that up. It's 3.3% per year. Was tithe for the poor in, 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 your, in the community. And then there was the temple tax as well, which was half a shekel. If you're 20 years or older. So when we read the word tithe in the Old Testament, what is it referring to? It's referring to all of this. That complicates things a little bit. Those of us who are so proud, I give 10%, I'm, I obey the law. You actually, you are not. If you want to stick to the tithe, you need to give way more than that. You'll have to move it up to 25%. And I think this was an incredible system. Because remember, these guys didn't repay. This was basically their tax. Anyway, if we put all of this together, a typical Jewish family did not give 10%, but gave around 25% per year. And so here's the question. Which one of these tithes and offerings is Malachi talking about? 
When Malachi says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, which tithe is he talking about? I submit to you today, ladies and gentlemen, he's talking about all of them. All of them. It was money and goods to feed the poor. It was money and goods to support the Levites. It was money used to upkeep the temple. It was money and goods for the festivals. The people of Israel were not paying their due. And the whole system, the religious system was struggling because of that. It was a system designed for Israel, for those in a covenantal relationship with God from Mount Sinai who were under Moses. So if we want to use the Old Testament conception of tithing, then we need to give between 20 and 25 percent. Well, 23 and 25 percent. Okay, shall we unpack and go home and just give up on this thing? Who, who, anybody here would like to give 23% of their income? Oh boy. Are you telling me I need to double my giving if I give 10%? No, I'm saying more than that. No, I'm not saying that. People debate. Should it be 10%? I, you know, this week researching what people say, and this guy says 10%, this guy says that, and you must give this, and you must give that. And in the end of the day, it doesn't even matter what percentage we give to it, because at the end of the day, 50% of American Christians give nothing. Statistical fact. And the other 50% give on average 3%. So we come nowhere near what the Israelites did. In any ways. Doesn't even matter arguing about it. Where do you stand? And this is between you and God. Not between you and me or you and the church. It's between you and God. What do you contribute to His kingdom? Now, so the first point is, is done. Tithing falls under the Mosaic law. Secondly, the things tithing is not commanded under the new covenant. And for many of this, this might be a little bit of a shocker because your whole life you've been taught you need to tithe, you need to tithe, you need to give 10%, you need to give 10%. Unfortunately, it's just not the truth. The New Testament does not require or obligate Christians to give 10%. The word tithe appears four times in the New Testament. It appears in the book of Matthew 23, 23 to 24 and Luke eleven forty-two. That's that, that sort of the same text. So I'm, I've just put up the one there. It says the following. Woe to you. Jesus is talking to who? The Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You give a tenth. Of your spices, your mint, your dill, and your cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a what? No, a gannat. <laughs> but, swallow, but swallow a camel. Remember, Jesus is not talking to Christians here. Who's he talking to? Pharisees, Jews, the leaders of Israel. They were supposed to pay the tithe because they were still under the law of Moses. And Jesus is teaching us two additional things here. Number one, tithing was part of the law of Moses. It's clear. He says this is part of the law. And secondly, tithing was less important than other virtues like mercy and faithfulness. He compares it and he says, well, the tithe is a gnat. Okay, I'll do it for you. A gnat. 
compared to justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So if you walk into a church where the main thing is the money you give to the church, then you know there's a spiritual problem. The other verse that appears in the Bible is Luke 18, 12 to 13. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Remember, this is about the two guys who were praying. So the Pharisee, the guy who feels good about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. That's, and that's just, there's no command there. I think you can see that pretty clearly. And then the other is in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4 to 9. Um, I'm not going to go over this because it's a, little bit, it's a little bit complicated. But basically, in a nutshell, um, the book of Hebrews is simply about showing how the the new covenant is better than the old covenant. How Jesus is a greater high priest than what Aaron was. That we have a, a different priesthood now than the previous. That everything now is better than, than in the past. And he mentions the concept of Abraham who goes and pays a tithe to Melchizedek, who is a strange figure. And you know when we talk about Melchizedek and that type of things, it, it becomes a little bit awkward. But go read this for yourself. By the way, this has got, there's no command in here or no instruction for us in this story that we're supposed to give 10% to the church. So I'll leave that for you to go study. And you're welcome to come ask me about it. And I can give you an explanation. I just realized this week I, I looked at the audio of my sermons. And it's like 50 minutes. And then I pray and I said, Lord, please let these people forgive me. Yes, like every week. And so I don't want to go on too much. Because I can go on for hours. Let me just not do that. So let's move on. Let me just cover this quickly. So let, let's recap quickly. Um, tithing was under the Mosaic law, and the New Testament does not require of us to tithe. But if God doesn't command tithing to Christians, should Christians then not give at all? Um, of course we should. Why? Because Jesus taught radical giving. You know, we go into the Old Testament, we look at the Jews, how much were you to give? Well, 10%, 25%, you know, where does it go? But what if Jesus was here and we say, Jesus, how much... What percentage do you think we need to give? Do you remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus? And what did Jesus say to him? He said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then you come and follow me. If Jesus was here today, he'd say, give up 100%. Give up everything. Sell your stuff. Come follow me. Go preach the gospel. Sell your cars. Give it all up and follow me. So if we, it's much more required of us under Christ than anything imaginable under the old covenant. If we want to be strict about this, and if we want to be legal about it, we should just sell our stuff and all go and preach the gospel. So Jesus taught radical giving. And I can give you many verses, but I'm just going to summarize it for us. The early church practiced radical giving. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Acts 4, 34 to 35. They sold their properties to make sure there was nobody in the church that couldn't survive. 
The Corinthian disciples gave consistently. 1 Corinthians 16 uh, verse 1 to 2. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. It doesn't say set aside 10%. It says a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. So that when I come, no collections will have to be made. What about the, um, the Macedonian disciples? They gave generously. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Nobody forced them. Paul didn't say, you need to give. They did it on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. That's incredible. So the apostles saying, they come to us and they say, how can we help? How can we give? How can we bring forth money for the people in Jerusalem that's undergoing this a tremendous time of poverty? The uh, Philippian disciples gave effectively. In Philippians chapter 4, um, Paul writes to these guys and he says, thank you guys for taking care of my needs. More, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So it's all over the New Testament. But tithing is something that we can go park in the Old Testament. Radical, gracious giving. For the right purpose is a New Testament concept. Now, it still leaves us with a question maybe. If God doesn't command us to give 10% and we should be giving, then how much should we be giving? How much? Well, we are under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. The law of Moses required about 25%. Well, how much does the law of Christ demand? First of all, the law of Christ doesn't demand because it's a law of grace. Under Moses, God gave the Jews land. He gave them the land. And he said, okay, give me 10% of what the land produces for the Levites, the poor, and the feast. Under Jesus, we don't get land. We, 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 we get Christ. We get Jesus, the Son of God. And heaven is saying, I give you my son's life. And then you decide if you want to offer my son anything. It's your choice. It's a free will gift. Free will offering. I just have to send us to one verse. Let's go back to the basic question. What must I give? How do I determine what I must give? What percentage? But he'll give us, a, give us a percentage so I know where I stand. I'm sorry. It's not there. There's one verse that will answer it for us. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly. Or under compulsion. 
For God loves a cheerful giver. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant. In its simplest form, how much must I give? How much do you want to give? And that will reflect what's going on in your heart. You see, it's all about the heart. When churches force people to give a certain percentage, a certain amount, that's not of God. Then it's not going to come from your heart. It's going to come under compulsion. Or because you feel forced. You're a little bit reluctant, but, oh, you know, this, this guy, just preacher just said, I'm robbing God, so I must give now. That's not the new covenant. That's not Christ. That's not, a, that's not an offering that comes from a heart. That's something under compulsion. It must come freely from your own heart. And it all depends on your heart. And it also depends on how much will give you joy. Will it make you happy when you give that? I mean, we could do an exercise. Choose an amount in your head quickly. You choose it. Don't tell anybody. Choose any amount of dollars. Don't choose too high because the next question is probably not going to work there. Can you give that amount cheerfully? Can you do it with a smile out of your heart? And feel that you're not forced to give it. Then that's what you give. Are you reluctant to give it? If not, that is what you can give. So whenever you want, you decide, you know what, I, I want to do, do something with money that I have. Don't just say, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to cut off 10%. And I'll give that. What about go sit and think about it? Go, just go read this verse. Let this verse guide you on that decision. Whatever it is that you have. So, And then you say, okay, with my heart, the way my heart's feeling now, I feel I want to give this. You know what happens? Immediately, heaven connects with your heart. And there's a fragrant aroma going up to heaven. God smells it. He sees, oh, there's joy in him when he gives. And he's happy. He says, I'm recording that. Essentially, the Bible says, pay your taxes. We need to pay our taxes. We need to support the government. Even though that's hard, we have to do it. We've got to be a good citizen. And we've got to give God whatever we want to give. The moment we turn it into a have to, then we're stepping into law and it doesn't come cheerfully and from the heart. Of course, there are additional principles. I can go on for three weeks preaching about giving, but as I said to you, the sermons have been too long lately, but I'll quickly pass this over to you. Some principles. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So there are principles. That you can use to help you in your giving process. Giving is an earthly investment that God keeps track of. Number one. Number two, look at this text. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 90-21. Giving is an eternal investment that God keeps record of. A faithful giver being blessed is able to give more. And so, here's a very important question. What on earth? Oh, it's the next verse. Sorry. 
I was confused there for a second. A bull from a store. I was like, what? It's like somebody says, there's a virus on my PowerPoint. Here's an important question. Who or what should I give to? Who or what should I give to? This is important. Let's be clear that we are not giving God money as if he needed it. We are not giving God money as if he needed it. And that's what these verses are about. Psalm 50 verse 9 to 12. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Everything belongs to God. But still God says to the Israelites, bring your bull. Why? God doesn't need our money, ladies and gentlemen. People need it. And God uses our giving to meet that need that people have. It's got an earthly use, but it's got a heavenly attachment, a heavenly investment. We cannot give God something that's not already His. Our giving to God never enriches Him. It enriches us. In Philippians chapter 4, from verse 10 onwards, Paul thanks the church for sending him money. But then he says, it's credited to your account. What account? It's not an earthly account. It's a heavenly account. And he says, it's a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So when I give, it goes to an earthly use, but it's pleasing to God and an, an aroma for him, a sacrifice for him. It's not the money that pleases God. But it's what it does for the kingdom. This is why this question is important. Sometimes we can give money to all kinds of causes. The question is, does it impact the kingdom? Or does it do something else? When I take money lying in my pocket, it's sometimes doing nothing. Do, do you guys have some money that does nothing? You're very blessed. You know, I find it incredible that people forget, forget like a $20 bill in a pocket somewhere. How, do you, how can you forget about that bad boy? You've got, you got to put that guy to use. When I take money lying in my pocket doing nothing, and I give it to a Christian who doesn't have food to eat, or I give it to a missionary in Pakistan to enable him to, to uh, preach the gospel to someone else, or instead of buying A&W, I put 20 bucks of gas in an evangelist's car so he can go share the gospel with someone in another town, then my money is making a difference for God's kingdom, and a fragrant offering is going to God. So biblical giving goes two places, into the hands of people who need it and onto the books of heaven that records it. But we have to do it right. You and I have a responsibility to send that money to the right place. And in the New Testament, the money that people gave was not used to make preachers rich. In actual fact, they were poor. Jesus didn't have a place to lay down his head. It wasn't used to build elaborate church buildings. In actual fact, the first century church didn't have church buildings. The money wasn't used to hire top-class worship leaders either. They didn't have any of those. The church wasn't a business, and it didn't have properties. The apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, they were not employees. They were people who gave up their secular occupations in order to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the Christians made that possible. Oh, Peter, I see that you're not fishing anymore. How are you going to eat tonight, bud? Well, I don't know. I've got a wife. 
uh, but uh, I don't know where she's going to get food. Hey, how about I give you some bucks and take care of your supper tonight? How about we make sure you don't have to go fish or you can go preach? Because the world needs to hear this message. That's what giving was used for. So in a nutshell, in the New Testament, the money the church received through gifts and offerings from ordinary people like you and me were given to three types of people. Number one, the poor. These could be widows and orphans. Acts chapter 6 shows us that the church fed the widows. 1 Timothy chapter 5 shows us that, that there was a widow list in the church that the church supported. We read in the book of Acts that there was a drought that came through Judea. People in Jerusalem um, became very poor and lacked food. The apostles then collected money from various churches in Macedonia and in Corinth, and they brought it to the Christians in Jerusalem to assist them during their difficult time. Take note. And maybe just take this. The church collected money and gave it to who? To all the poor people in Jerusalem? Or to the poor in the church? Go read it for yourself. They gave to the Christians in Jerusalem first. Ladies and gentlemen, we first take care of our own families. And our family is our spiritual family. And then we can go give money to people in other churches who need it. And then we can go give money to people in our community. That's what I see in the text. Secondly, the apostles and preachers of the gospel. They received a living from the text. 2 Corinthians 9 is a good place to go. In verse 9, it becomes apparent that the church supported the livelihood of the apostles and their wives. Here's a text, 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? Here's a key verse. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. I have been... My sister's husband is an atheist, and he finds it extremely intriguing that I live off donations. I survive off donations. Because I'm a preacher of the gospel, and I say it with a smile on my face today. I am not ashamed to receive a living to feed my family and cover my needs so I can preach the gospel. It's in the text. I see very few people put up their hands and say, you know what, I'll leave my job and my career to go preach the gospel. I see very few people do that. I feel it's an honor to do that. And not a shame to live off the goodwill and the blessings of those who love the gospel too. Jesus did it. Jesus felt no shame. His ministry was financed through a bunch of women who somehow inherited some money somewhere. His ministry was financed through fish who apparently swam around with coins in their mouths. When he needed to pay tax, he just threw a, a line and catch a fish quickly. And his ministry was financed through miracles. And I stand in front of you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've seen his miracles in my life. He's fed me and taken care of my family. And he still does to this day. It is scriptural. It is godly. I studied civil engineering. 
after school and I worked in the field. I had a bright and blessed future ahead of me. It wasn't like, oh, things don't work out in the secular world. Let me just go, uh, I'll become a preacher. They make a lot of money. No. It's the opposite. It's a calling. It's a sacrifice. I was far better at math, structural engineering, and engineering design than I was at theology, writing, or public speaking. I hated speaking in public. At school, when I had to give a speech, I was like, oh, ma'am, just give me zero. It's fine. I'll, I'll just take it. I did not choose to become a gospel preacher for money or for a great future. I did it exactly for the opposite reason. I was called by God in the deepest recesses of my heart for this mission. I gave up a life of money and security in a house for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, I'm not ashamed. I'm always with you. I'm not ashamed when this church supports me. So I can be available when people want to hear about God. When I meet lost people, so I've got time to do that. So I'm not tired because of the secular job I did the whole day. I'm available to talk about these things, to educate God's people, to equip God's people for works of service. I'm not ashamed that I get supported, that my children can eat, they can go to school, we can have a car, we can get where we need to go, so we can live to do this mission. I'm not ashamed of living in this church. Because it gives me an opportunity to do this work. That very few people want to do on a full-time basis. Then thirdly, there's the teaching elders. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. The text there is 1 Timothy 5. Yeah, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. It is work to teach and preach. It takes time to study. It takes effort. And it is necessary for us to eat from the word of God. Imagine we have no teachers that can pour into us the word. It fulfills a very important role in our lives. And we should value it. Uh, yeah, we should value it. Let me close off. Allow me to answer those questions that I started off with. What is tithing and should we tithe? Tithing is 10%. It's a good number. If you want to use that as a number to give, do that. But make sure it comes from your heart. May it be done in joy. If you're not happy to do it, go back, work on your heart, and then you come and give. I grew up and I worked in churches where the giving plate used to go around. Did anybody else go to churches like that? It was a little bag. It's got two handles, one on each side. It was really awkward during COVID. It's like, oh, you know, let me take that thing. And then... You know, the bags were quite good, unless if you were in front, it was good. But if you sat at the back, it was really awkward, because people can hear the coins drop on the coins. But if you're the first one throwing in, people would think you threw in 200 when you threw in 5 cents. So that was the bags that went around. This is the first time in my life I've come across a church where there's a giving box at the back that many people who visit you don't even know about. Because nothing is being forced on you. It's awkward like when the bag comes around. Oh, people are looking at me. I must throw in something. And most of the time I have no cash. I'm like, where's the cart machine, bro? Like, makes it really awkward. And you know what's beautiful about that? Is that it was the same in the temple. When Jesus stood there and he's looking at people throwing in at the, at the temple. And the widow with the two mites came and threw in. It's very similar to that. It's a free will offering. Nobody has to see you do that. It's between you and God when you do that. It is designed this way so that it is never under compulsion or forced. It's done freely from your heart. 
The second question was this. How should money be used for in God's kingdom? Remember just the double P. For the poor and for the proclamation of the gospel. When you give your money, make sure that it's going for the poor, for those who need it, or it's contributing to the preaching of the gospel. It, that is the best investment. Number three, do I give to God or the church? If you listen carefully, both. God converts your giving into heavenly currency and leaves the earthly currency in the hands of responsible men. And we as a church, we've chosen, for example, at our church, who the men are that decides what happens with the money. And I hope that you trust them. You should. And then lastly, can the kingdom of God continue without money? Yes. I think so. God doesn't need our money to let His Spirit work. But it certainly leverages kingdom growth. What do I mean? You know when Jesus was feeding the 5,000? Did he, did he just magically create loaves and fish from nothing? Or did he have five fish or five loaves and two fish? You see, somebody gave that. Can you imagine you are that little boy with the two fish? I've got two fish. Can you imagine you are that boy that come to Jesus with it? I think that's incredible. So whatever we give, God leverages into multiplication. And you receive the blessing. And the kingdom grows. There's no losing giving. There's no losing. It's just growth. Jesus multiplies it and you get a reward in heaven. If we believe the gospel saves the world from sin, how will we get it into the world? I'm reminded of Romans 10 verse 14. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. We cannot send someone to preach the gospel and not assist to give what is necessary for the task at hand. But perhaps the question is wrong. Perhaps the question shouldn't be, can the kingdom of God continue without money? Maybe the question should be, can I really be a true disciple of Christ if I'm not willing to offer up some of my money for His glory? Maybe we should focus on that question. I am proud of you. Proud of this church. This is a Bible-based church. And there are very few of those around in this community. God's church will always stand, but it's up to us to make this one stand into the next generation. It's our responsibility. The last picture you've already had a glimpse of there is the Lutheran church on, I think it's called Furlorn, 109 Holly Street. You heard a few months ago, there was a fire that broke out on the side, maybe some druggies or whatever. That church is dead. It's on the market. It's for sale. I pray that never happens. And this is not, this is not because of a lack of money. You know where it all starts? In here. When the Spirit is among a group of people, it will continue into the next generation. I beg you to draw closer to Christ so that this, this building will never be on an image like that. Doors are closed. From that building, the message won't go out anymore. Nobody goes there. Nobody's there this morning. It's empty. 
Maybe a few ghosts hanging around their previous church members, but other than that, there's nothing. May this never happen here. May we continue to serve the gospel and contribute our time, our treasure, and talent to the mission in Sweet Home.